you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, for our Old Testament Scripture reading. We'll read the entire chapter here. Uh, Moses, as he begins to conclude his farewell sermon unto the people of Israel as he is about to die. For, for several chapters, has been telling them of the need for them to circumcise their own hearts, and yet they are not able to do so. And here, he reminds them of God's own promise that what they are not able to do, God will come Himself and do and will circumcise their hearts. Chapter 30. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and you obey His voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there He will take you. The Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all His commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, and the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your cattle, and the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as He took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes that are written in the book of the law, this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today, it's not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea and for us bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart that you can do it, so that you can do it. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandment of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him. For He is your life, the length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. 
Now, if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 10 for our New Testament reading, find that Paul here comments on this particular passage. As Paul delineates between a righteousness that is based off the works of the law, which no man can accomplish, and a righteousness that comes through faith, is received solely through faith alone. Paul writes this, that Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The scripture says that the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, that the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 7, our sermon text. Two verses. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is... God's Word. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we do hear uh, the voice of your Son this morning uh, through the words of Scripture, we pray uh, that you would illuminate our hearts, that we might heed his warnings and exhortation to enter by the narrow gate. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a scene in Pilgrim's Progress that continually Um, I find my mind returning to over and over and over again. It's those opening pages where the lonely pilgrim Christian finds that he is alone, fleeing the city of destruction. Even as he heeds the warning of the evangelist to flee from the wrath to come, his family will not join him. And so he runs, still bearing the weight of his burden and all alone. He has neighbors who he tries to convince to join him, uh, and yet they try to dissuade him from running the narrow path, be it obstinate or pliable, the worldly wise man or legality, legality even trying to uh, get the pilgrim to travel by another perhaps easier road, the road of morality. Despite the temptations of sloth and presumption in the face of the scoffing of mistrust and timorous against the grumblings of Mr. Discontent and the chatterings of Mr. Talkative and the flatterer, 
Here we find that the pilgrim goes up the hill called Difficult, down through the valleys of humiliation and the shadow of death, through a single path, crossing and traversing the country plains of conceit. The pilgrim marches on and often alone. He is persecuted by Pope and pagan. He is terrorized by the giant despair. He is even for a time imprisoned in Doubting Castle. He is enticed by the trappings of Vanity Fair and Lucre Hill. He is even lured at one point by Mr. Atheist, as Mr. Atheist offers Christian the entire world. Along the way, Christian is, in fact, assaulted by Satan and death himself. Though pulled in every direction, though tempted to divert from the narrow path, Christian marches forward along the way, fraught with toil and danger, knowing this, that this path, despite how arduous it is, is the only way that leads to the celestial city. This morning we enter into the final section of the Sermon on the Mount. I think I mentioned to you last week that we could divide Christ's sermon in three parts. The part one that describes, chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, who we are. And from 5.17 up until 7.12 describes what we are to do. As God requires a righteousness that supersedes that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And now here in this last section that will take us to the end of the chapter, our Savior begins to uh, lay out a series of warnings. Two paths are set before us, a path fraught with toil and danger, a path that is lonely, and a path that is difficult. The question we have before us is which path will we choose? Will we go down the path of dead man's lane, though it looks wide and easy? Or will we take the hard road that is the only road that leads to life? Christ's exhortation to us this morning is this, to choose the difficult path and choose life. Two considerations this morning. First, we'll consider the wide gate or the wide road, and then the narrow gate and the narrow road. And finally, we'll ask and assess ourselves, asking which path we shall take. Those of you who are familiar with the old 1940 Disney's cartoon Pinocchio, uh, it builds up to uh, this particular scene towards the end of the cartoon where Pinocchio has made it to Pleasure Island. It is a cursed island, though it does not feel cursed. It's an island full of boys getting to do whatever it is that they want. As there are so many uh, vendors on the street shouting left and right, come here boys, get your cake, your pie, your dill dill pickles and ice cream. It's very odd to have dill pickles and ice cream, but apparently it's what young boys would have. Eat all you can. Be a glutton, stuff yourselves. It's all free, boys. It's all free, as the coachman calls to them. What would it be like to be Pinocchio or any of these boys thinking, man, is this not the life? All the pleasure, all the delight, all the pickles and ice cream I want. 
where I can gorge myself and eat my fill, to eat, drink, and be merry with no thought of tomorrow. And what they do not know is that by partaking in such fancies, with all the entertainment and all the frivolity, it is designed to turn the boys into beasts. The pleasure is a trap. The ease and the merriment are designed not for their good, but for their utter destruction. It's the very thing of which our Savior warns us about this morning. Such is the nature of the wide path that so many embark upon. Such is the nature of sin. Consider the demographic that Jesus describes here. How many people take the wide path? That's many. The majority take this route. It's really the problem that we find with the wide path of ease and comfort. It feels so good. Not just that, there is, of course, the problem of peer pressure. As the crowd begins to kind of herd like sheep going in a particular direction, and you feel the pressure to go along with the flow. We live in a world where people think that the majority opinion is what makes something right. And it's the very thing that our Savior warns against. Just because the rest of the world is doing it does not make it the right thing. It is a trap. The path of destruction is the path that most embark upon either wittingly or unwittingly. Their destination is destruction. These are warnings that we see over and over and over again in the Scriptures, not just among the prophets in the Old Covenant, but among the writings of the apostles in the new. Paul himself writes to the church of Corinth, who they themselves, living in the city of Vanity Fair, as it were, do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Fornicators, idolaters, the effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, the covetous, drunkards, the verbally abusive, the swindlers, not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Bound for destruction. You make it to the end of Revelation. Revelation 22, the Apostle John even reaffirms this that outside of the gates of the kingdom of heaven are not just the serial killers and the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the idolaters, and the liars. It's one of the things that our Savior's been getting at in this particular sermon, that the righteousness that God requires is not a simple, superficial righteousness. It is a righteousness that runs to the very heart. Not just the adulterers, but those who nurture lust in their heart. It's not just the murderer who will be excluded, but the one who slanders his neighbor. It's not just the one who perjures under oath, but the one who tells the white lie. It's not just the one who hates his neighbor, but the one who hates his enemy. So often we set the standard so low, convincing ourselves that we are somehow good enough. As we look around us and say, I thank you, God, that I am not like these other men. At least I'm not Hitler. And so we think that we are righteous enough. I think it's rather significant I was reading in uh, Stuart Robinson's Discourses of Redemption this week. He was an old school Presbyterian in a border state in the mid-19th century, and he gives a sermon on the rich man and Lazarus. 
And he says how interesting it is, how significant that the rich man in this parable is not described as being an overtly immoral guy. He's not a philanderer. He's not described as being a drunkard or a carouser. All it says is that he joyously lived his life in splendor every day and that he paid no heed to Moses or the prophets. We tend to tweak the standard of God's laws just enough to convince ourselves that we are okay. You must be at least this tall to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we set the bar just low enough where we convince ourselves that, yeah, nobody's perfect, but at least I'm not like X. We make it easy for ourselves and fail to consider the rigors of Christ's commands on our own life. Jesus makes it very clear your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And it is a righteousness that runs deep. It is a righteousness that runs down to the very heart. And yet, when it comes to the task of discipleship, we create such a wide road that permits sin. And here, our Savior tells us it is a dead-end road that spells eternal doom. It looks easy. It looks appealing. Everyone's going down that road. And yet, for all of the glitz and the glamour, is the very thing that will destroy your soul. Our Savior says there's another path to take. It's the path that no one wants to take. It's a path that is hard. Look at the description that He gives for this alternative path. It is small, It is narrow, it is traversed by few, it is difficult and arduous. One that describes the path of discipleship. Over and over again, our Savior says what is required if you want to follow Him. What is it that you must do? If any man desires to follow Me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In the ancient world, there's only one reason you'd be carrying a cross. It's because you're carrying a cross to your own death. Let there be no room for confusion. The Christian life is hard. Trials from without and trials from within. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus will talk about the importance and necessity of self-denial. Perhaps the most difficult thing to do is to die to our own wants and desires, our own pride, our own desire for vengeance, our own longing to have the last word, our own uh, uh, desire to have all of our earthly joys fulfilled in the here and now, and Jesus says you must crucify it. How difficult it is to take God's Word and to shine the spotlight of His Word onto our own hearts as the Word exposes our own selfishness, our own perversion, our own anger, 
our own malice and pride, hatred, lust, greed, and covetousness, so that the Spirit might work to conform the inner man to look like Christ. The only way in which we will look like Christ is through mortification, death to sin. And the process is painful, it is difficult, and it hurts. And yet it is the path that leads to life. Yet we find that it's not just the trials from within that the Christian must face, it's also trials from without. Those uh, afflictions and tribulations that assault the believer, both individually and as a people. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Make note of it. Write it down. It's going to happen. Paul, writing to the church of Philippi, says this, that it's been granted for Christ's sake that you not only believe in Him. We think of faith as one of the great blessings of the Spirit, that the Spirit works faith in our hearts through the preaching of the Word that we might trust Him, and it is God's gracious gift. And Paul says in Philippians 1, it has not only been granted that you believe in Him, it has also been granted that you suffer for His sake. It is a precious gift of the Spirit, and it hurts. That's why Paul will write to Timothy, saying, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Despite the affliction, despite the turmoil, despite the pain, Paul will still write that in light of eternity, it is but a light momentary affliction that prepares us for the eternal weight of glory. The road is hard, but it is the path that leads to life. Who would ever want to walk that road? Jesus says, very few. You have the problem of loneliness, of exclusion, ostracization, mockery. First Peter chapter 4, Paul, uh, Peter writes to a group of Christians who have been excluded from uh, their, their peer group because they're not getting drunk at the town kegger. We all know how much it hurts not to be part of the inner ring. Now, the friends that you once had no longer call you to hang out with them on Friday nights. You might pretend like it's no big deal, but Scripture knows differently. It could be isolating, it could be lonely, as a form of suffering, and yet it is better to suffer for Christ and to suffer with Christ now and to inherit heaven and the world to come. It's better to have that than to forsake Christ now for the fleeting pleasures of sin and to hear Christ say as we stand before Him on the last day, Who are you again? Depart from me. I never knew you. Is there a pet sin that you continue to nurse and cherish and think that it's okay not to repent of? Heed Christ's warning that unless you repent you will certainly perish. So Jesus has already been making these statements. It's better to enter into life maimed than to enter into hell 
be cast into hell with your body fully intact. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. Here is a call to exclusive discipleship. An exclusive love for the Lord. You think of the Lord's table. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 10. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It is one or the other. Which one will it be? Here, the ultimatum is being presented before you. You cannot continue sleeping around or indulging every night in pornography, thinking that everything is okay so long as you go through the motions Sunday morning at church. You cannot continue to hurl insults against your wife and abuse your kids behind closed doors without remorse, without change, and think that God is going to let you off the hook. One of the great problems that uh, so many people in Jeremiah's day uh, uh, reckoned with was that they treated church attendance as a talisman, as a lucky rabbit's foot. As they would say, the temple, the temple, the temple. Hi, let me continue to live life in sin. Let me to continue to indulge in all the desires of the flesh so long as I'm still uh, make it to temple Friday night, Saturday morning, so long as I still attend Sunday school, as it were, so long as I still stay, say my prayers and have this kind of outer shell of piety, everything's going to be okay. And the whole point here is that it's not okay. The righteousness that God requires must run much deeper. The rigors of discipleship are hard and they are costly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says when when God calls a man, when he bids him to come, he bids him to come and to die. And yet it is the only path to life. We see here that there are two paths that are set before us, not three. There is no third option. You might think, well, let me just continue to wait and uh, weigh my options. That itself is a choice. And you are not promised tomorrow. Repeatedly over and over again, the, the, the only thing that is offered is to, while it is still called today, for you to say, I'll just wait till tomorrow to make my decision, is itself a choice. And it is a choice that is leading you on a path to destruction. There is a fork in the road in which we all stand, and Christ is saying, now is the time to decide. Judgment may come tomorrow for you. To presume that it will not happen to you is to play with fire. Wide is the road, and many walk that road. It is the path that leads to destruction. Here our Savior calls us to heed His own beckoning call to enter through the narrow gate. There is only one path to heaven. There is only one gate. And you might be saying, okay, great, then I will simply try harder. But if that is your response to Christ's call, then you have missed the point of Christ's call and teaching entirely. For that was the path of the Pharisees. Again, Jesus says there needs to be a righteousness that exceeds theirs. 
And their righteousness only ran skin deep. We find that in the book of Deuteronomy, this is the same problem that Moses himself encountered when he addressed the people on the plains of Moab. Here he addresses, as we read earlier, a nation that continued to practice a righteousness based on the law. Over and over again, Moses continues to say, circumcise your heart, circumcise your heart, circumcise your heart. And everybody goes, great, I'll continue, I'll do it. And Moses says, you don't get the point. The point is, if there is a righteousness that is based off the law, you will fall flat on your face and you will fail. Judgment and exile are coming for your sin. God's response at the end of this, at the end of Moses' sermon, is the great promise where the Lord says, because you can't do it, I will circumcise your heart and provide a righteousness that is based on faith. Elsewhere, Jesus says that there is only but one way, there is only but one door, there is only but one gate. John chapter 10, he says, I am the door. I am the way. It is only through me that life is found. Jesus says, this is the work of God that you must do. To believe. That by believing, you will have life in his name. See, the life of discipleship does not simply, or does not consist in saying, well, I'm just going to kind of pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm just going to simply try harder. I'm going to grit my teeth more. The life of discipleship begins with this the fear of the Lord, trusting fully in Christ. So when the Spirit works faith in your heart, it changes the way that you walk as you now follow in the footsteps of your Savior. It is a walk that He's prepared for us. As as he's called us to follow him in the footsteps of faith. What Christ is calling for is to have a walk that corresponds with the faith that we profess. That we follow in the footsteps of our Savior. And the starting place is this, that we begin, that, that, that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only here that we will find and receive a righteousness that God requires. But as that righteousness is imputed to us, as it is reckoned to our account, the Spirit begins to work that faith in our heart. He begins to to, to change the way that we live, that that faith becomes a lively faith. It is a faith that, as Jesus will say in the following sections, is a faith that bears fruit. It's a faith that bears fruit into godliness. That we walk a walk that corresponds with the very uh, uh, faith that we profess. This narrow road is not a works-based road, but neither is it a, a, an easy believism where we treat God's Word as a totem or an amulet to simply continue living a life of sin. What Christ is looking for is a lively faith, a walk that, cor- that accords with faith, A faith that perseveres despite uh, the promise of earthly pleasures. A faith that that does not grow weary uh, and, and fall away in the face of affliction and persecution. A faith that looks forward to that better world that awaits. The author of Hebrews says, We desire that you would not be sluggish. That you would imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises 
as he calls us to run with endurance, setting our sights on the author and finisher of our faith, the one who works faith in us, the one who perfects faith in us, the one who strengthens our faith, him who is the object of our faith. The question that is set before each and every one of us today is which path will we choose? Will we choose the path of self and sin, the path of moral autonomy and self-sufficiency, or will we walk the path of faith that calls us to trust in Christ, to die to self, and to obey Him even when it hurts? Heed Christ's own exhortation to choose Christ and to choose life. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We confess that we are in such need of Your Spirit's work in our hearts. We pray that You would enable us to trust Christ more fully and deeply. And that in trusting Christ and resting and receiving on Christ, in Christ, uh, that we would uh, have a walk that accords uh, with the faith that we profess. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.